Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And now it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And I'll be here until 6 this evening, but I'll have to start the program by saying thank you so much to all the wonderful people who donated during the Radiothon last week. A big, big thank you. This is your radio station and you're helping to keep it alive for another year. And if you weren't listening over the last week to any of the programs here at 3CR, please think about a donation if you haven't already. That would be very gratefully appreciated. Today on the program, Kieran O'Reilly will be speaking from London about the history of WikiLeaks and the plight of Australian journalist and publisher Julian Assange. Activist and researcher Joan Coxidge commentating on current affairs. Bougainville waiting for the delayed referendum vote. I'll be speaking with Vicky Johns from the Bougainville Freedom Movement. And the Chagos Islands in the Indian Ocean Many people might know the name Chagos so well, but if you say Diego Garcia, that's a different matter. That is one of the Chagos Islands, and it is the biggest U.S. base in the world. I'll be speaking to Margaret Pirrell about the hopeful for the people of the Chagos Islands to get back to their islands. But first, Mr. Kevin Healy, and he's at another week. A week, Jane Lister, when where would we be without the self-proclaimed credit rating agencies like Standard making you pause, which says states must flog off anything they own which can turn over a neat little profit, which they haven't already flogged off, to build infrastructure built by the great corporations. Uh, so they'll flog off what they own so they can own infrastructure. Uh, well, no, no, of course, they, they wouldn't own the infrastructure unless it, uh, it loses money. Speaking of, doing his bit for the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world economy, big supremo Donald Trump the poor said Mexico now respected him and the U.S. of. Grammatically wrong, but he, his modest language, now respected where until he came along they had taken the U.S. of as idiots. Well, some consolation, Donald, it's not just Mexico who takes you as an idiot. I, I don't know anyone who doesn't. Although no one could be as dumb, dumb, dumb as those evil, evil Iranians. Surely they know Donald's senior advisor for trained killing and slaughter, John Beltham, is so concerned at the threat they pose to peace, as he keeps scratching his insatiable itch, that he feels he must reluctantly advise Donald to wipe Iran off the map to liberate its people and give the wreckage that remains a leadership the US of can, sorry, sorry, the liberated people can trust. The insatiable itch for peace, and the US of knows there's only one way to achieve peace, corroborated by no less respectable industry as the merchants of death, whose sole purpose in producing trillions of dollars of and trillions of weapons of mass destruction is the preservation of peace. Yet, just as a fleet of US of weapons of lands off its coast in the quest for peace, what does dumb, dumb, dumb Iran do? It attacks these oil tankers, including a Japanese oil tanker, just when the Japanese Big Supremo is there to avoid this sort of thing. What provocation, what 
dumb, dumb, dumb provocation. And that's on top of sending drones to bomb peace-loving, liberty, freedom and democracy-loving Saudi, a major force for peace in the region. Now, some conspiracy theory cynics with no proof whatever are suggesting this is all a US of dirty tricks campaign, as if the great protector of world peace would resort to dirty tricks. Conspiracy theory cynics falling for Iran's evil, evil Iran's denials. Well, they would, wouldn't they, when there can be no doubt the US of has produced the proof. An Iranian-style bomb thingy manufactured as recently as 1800 and something. What more proof do they need? And the US of has lots more proof which it can't disclose for security reasons. Uh, uh, what reasons? We asked John Belton. To maintain the security of our story that weapons of mass destruction are... Uh, how could I describe it? A incident at the UN of the US of the UN of the world has made us more careful about exposing our security sources. Now, fair enough, John, although the Japanese crew says they saw flying objects which would disprove your irrefutable evidence. What would they know? Were they there? Uh, well, yeah, they were, but they lack the sophisticated technology that is our peace machine. At certain times of day in that region, people can see optical illusions. Uh, what certain times of day? It usually occurs when our peace-loving train-killer jets are overhead. It, it's a natural phenomenon. So their eyewitness account is unreliable because they were there. Exactly. Obviously. And your proof is exactly, obviously. Speaking of peace and security, the Minister for Keeping Us Secure, the and overseeing concentration camps, razor wire and sink the boats, Constable Peter Duffer, continuing the compassionate policy set by his predecessor and now leader, Big Supremo scuttled them more last son, scrambled out of the zombie swamp where he had been weighed down by certain raids to announce his solution. It's time for a sensible discussion on domestic spy powers, he said, leaving us to ponder why he wants to leave himself out. Oh, oh no, he went on to say the sensible discussion must address complex security issues. So that's the point where he's ruled out and what self-awareness. The Duff said he believes the True Blue Aussie Signals Directorate, which currently spies on overseas communications, should be allowed to spy on True Blue Aussies. Hang on, haven't we heard that before? Oh yes, of course, that's the very recommendation leaked by a journalist the Federal <coughs> raided and which the Duff now denies was even being considered. So, so this evil criminal journalist must have sewn the idea into Pete's skull or through his skull. She's got a lot to answer for. Maybe the government should prosecute her caring employer, the American Lord Rupert of Wapping, or thank him for the idea and all the other brilliant ideas Lord Rupert demands as the great overseeing protector of our liberties, the fourth estate guardian of our freedoms, bringing us in this radiothon season to why we need 3CR at all when we've got, it, got Lord Rupert and all the other... Well, with Lord Rupert, there's not that many other, but the other great fourth estate practitioners who bring us all the news we need to know and don't bring us, by democratic decision, all the news we don't need to know.
these people know their role is to remain independent of capitalism so they can maintain their independence, their neutrality. So we must admire them for having no interest whatever in seeking huge profits and being just another caring business in the world of caring business. On that basis, 3CR doesn't help their liberty and freedom commitment by broadcasting lots of the news they know we don't need to know. As a by-the-by, given Constable Duffer exposed that the government's thinking of doing that for which a journalist was raided, can he expect a raid on his home any day now? One of the most important things we do note, we do need to know, is that evil unions are evil. And speaking of capitalism, what right do financial amateurs like evil union bosses have to oversee the trillions of lovely, lovely workers' super money when that onerous responsibility is the rightful role of financial professionals in the great enterprises that are the respectable banks? No, let's not go with an oxymoron. The banks and the financial institutions. And we recall the former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Kelly Oda, why are workers so evil? Wonder if Kelly et al. now regret leaping off the ship that righted itself. Kelly inserting that term of reference into the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission to prove how evil, evil, evil workers controlling workers' money is. And how... Good, good, good is the corporate boardrooms controlling workers' money and poor Kelly hopping around on one foot with blood streaming from the board in her other foot as his honour revealed the ripping off and rorting problems lay with the very people to whom Kelly and the team want to hand all that lovely, lovely money. Thankfully, despite that painful attack, the government now feels enough time has elapsed for us to forget that little finding, and our big economic guru, Josh Friedem Icebergs, declared this week a top priority for the economy is to remove evil unions from all that lovely, lovely, which must be handed to the banks and other mates who know about these things. But... The Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission found the union co-run funds easily outperform your ripping off mates. Are you from 3CR? Thought so. I'll overlook your typical 3CR mode of language, but clearly his honour found the industry funds were ripping off and rorting the banks and great financial institutions' retail funds. How do you reach that conclusion? How are they rorting and ripping off your mates? They are not my mates. I am simply acting in the best interests of the country and the best interests of the workers, as evil as workers are. They are rorting and ripping off by exposing how the banks and the great financial institutions are rorting and ripping off. Oh, well, on that he makes a strong and accurate argument. Delightful moment on last night's commercial telly news and this morning's print media. An adorable photo they told us of Archie, the newest inbred mouth the British taxpayer has to feed. And it is so beautiful, so adorable. Why, with tears welling in my eyes, I thought he looked so, how can I say it, so much like a baby with someone's big arm right across his face. The big arm of false propaganda. This so-called sustainability mob at Melbourne Uni claimed the economy will be 500 billion plus better off by 2030 if we take serious steps to address climate change and about the same worse off if we practice business as usual. Don't these people realise we're meeting our commitments in a canter? The increase in pollution by the year is just a temporary aberration which will disappear with the end of the planet. No worries. Finally, 
all this debate about tax cuts and the socialists complaining about giving all this money to the big end of town and upsetting poor minister for blaming the socialists for everything Matthias Rotten to that by suggesting the government does not have a mandate for events in eight elections time have been put in their place because the socialists and the recalcitrant crossbenchers are wrong. Proven by P1 headline, today's true blue Aussie capitalist review, tax cuts, no handouts to the rich. There, case closed. Good afternoon. And that was Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. And I might mention once again that Kevin's been doing his week that was for over 30 years now. Long, long time. And I don't understand how he remembers all the names, but he seems to. He won't let me into the secret one day. And, of course, there's tomorrow, 9 o'clock, City Limits, with Kevin and a couple of friends, 9 till 10 tomorrow morning. And if you've made your donation already, if you've made your pledge and haven't paid yet, there are a number of ways you can do that. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 03-9419-8377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Lovers, the new International Bookshop is hosting our annual Big Red Book Fair. Come down to the Trades Hall in Carlton on Saturday the 29th of June from 10am to 5pm. As always, the book fair features thousands of books across all genres, all radically priced. There's also a barbecue and a showcase of radical posters. In order to make this fundraiser a success, we are calling for book donations now. So if you have books that need a new home, please get in contact via the website at nibs.org.au or on 9662 3744. That's 9662-3744. The New International Bookshop, a 3CR supporter. Late last week, I spoke with Australian Catholic worker, anti-war activist Kieran O'Reilly in London, where he continues to support Julian Assange, first outside the Ecuadorian embassy and now outside the maximum security prison in London. I asked Kieran to focus first on the beginnings of WikiLeaks and why did Julian set it up in the beginning? He launched it in 2006, and he was probably working on it for a couple of years before that. Julian, yeah, it's got an interesting trajectory. He was born in 1971 in Townsville and uh, has a child when he's 17 around Melbourne. And uh, over the first 17 years, travelled around Australia, reported 37 schools. So from 17 to 34, he's pretty much based in Melbourne, raising a child as a single father. 
I guess that brings him up to uh, 2000, just for 2006, I guess. That's when he launched WikiLeaks. And then he's, you know, very mobile for about four years uh, around the world. And then he's been trapped in the UK for the last eight years. WikiLeaks was launched in 2006. What did he hope to achieve with WikiLeaks? The old thing takes you from the scripture, actually, the truth will set you free. And that there's something, I guess the ethic is, you know, privacy for the individual and transparency for the government. And, and corporations and power. And that, as Edward Snowden has told us, it's actually the reverse. We have no privacy and there's no accountability for power. So obviously the big uh, splash was in 2010 when Chelsea Manning blew the whistle on war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and elsewhere. I think to give... The, you know, the, it was anonymous at that time. The best exposure for their leak in terms of the risk they were taking, that's the first time WikiLeaks worked with the mainstream media and The Guardian, New York Times, and launching that, you know, especially The Guardian, related to the train, basically. If you look at his life, he pretty much grew up in the Australian anti-war movement. His parents met during the Vietnam War struggle, and his mother was active in the anti-nuclear, anti-Iranian movement in the 70s and 80s. But he did publish a fair bit in that time between 2006-2010, not necessarily on America, on America, but in other countries of the world. What did he expose well, there? Especially corruption in Africa and elsewhere. And I guess my entry point is, you know, I'm, I'm not a techie and I'm not, you know, I'm not a media person. I'm pretty cynical about the media. <laughs> my entry point is the anti-war thing and, uh, yeah. To me, it was obvious that he was being persecuted and fitted up because he was exposing U.S. war crimes. I guess the unfortunate thing there is the leak happened in 2010, and the anti-war movement, if you could call it that, of 2003 was pretty much dead and buried by the time those revelations came out. If those revelations had come out, say, in 2003 or 2004, there may have been some kind of activist movement around, but I personally, you know, I've been involved for 40 years now, and I don't think there's been an anti-war movement since, since about 1991, really. I came in very much on that kind of solidarity, seeing him as an anti-war publisher, and I was in London when he first got listed and began supporting uh, him at that point. But you've also been supporting Chelsea Manning. Yeah. What actually did she send to Julian? I can add Chelsea family very well in Wales and uh, Chelsea's father was a Welsh soldier stationed in Wales and her mother Susan married him and they moved to the States and when they divorced Chelsea was brought back to Wales at age 11 and grew up there till 17. Then went back to join the father and ended up homeless and working in Starbucks living in a car and was kind of advised to join the US military that she wanted a college education you know that's how she ended up in Baghdad you know, came across evidence of war crimes on her watch and um, went to a senior officer and was pretty much told to ignore it. Then she attempted to leak information to the New York Times and Washington Post, but they didn't express any interest. And that's when she turned to WikiLeaks, which was kind of not as her first option. She also released cables from U.S. embassies throughout the world, you know, 
which were more embarrassing than anything, you know, their kind of opinions about the British royal family, and even their opinions about myself and for other people who declared that Paul Payne and Shannon were found not guilty in Ireland of that. It kind of was this raw data that, you know, that really needed courageous journalists to use to write good articles that made it more accessible to people. Some people did that. And I, I know I'm thinking one incident, Maggie O'Kane, who wrote an article, I think it's a documentary as well, uh, called The El Salvador Option, about how the Americans had brought back the people who'd set up the torture chambers in El Salvador in the 1980s and got caught out to contrigate up there and actually brought them back out of the private sector to set up the torture chambers in Iraq. All that was revealed by cables published for WikiLeaks. What was the initial reaction when that was exposed? Who picked it up? Other media picked it up, didn't they? Yes, well, with those, you know, I think WikiLeaks worked with The Guardian and New York Times and The Spiegel in Germany to do a simultaneous release of uh, the Iraq war logs and Afghanistan war logs and what was called Tablegate. The Guardian and, yeah, it was either through professional jealousy or class hatred or <laughs> like Australians or whatever their motive was. Has been the worst propagandist against Julian, and now they've realised that once he's espionage charges, which are being laid tomorrow, I guess, um, being brought to British court tomorrow, came up, they've realised they've been busy trying to throw Julian overboard for seven years or eight years, and they're actually shackled to him, and this will be the end of, of any kind of national security state journalism, because this is a precedent where. Uh, I don't know if Julian's been to the States. If he has, he hasn't been there very often for very long. But I was talking to Laurie Love the other night. They tried to extradite him to the States. He's never been to the States. So there's self-entitlement where they can just reach out once they've got Julian to any journalist writing critically about the United States and bring them to court and to a dungeon in the States. You, know. you can imagine a Chinese doing that or the Russians doing that and someone wrote critically about their national security state and what outrage it would be if they would try to extract them from another country. What was his connection with Ecuador that allowed him to end up in the embassy there in London? Well, politically, also Julian's predicament partly kind of roadkill on the kind of seismic shift in empire now because in the 1990s the Americans had a thing called Plan Colombia which uh, you know, they built a lot of military bases in Colombia ready to police South America but then they got attacked in New York and by their former allies the kind of fundamentalist jihadists that they worked with not only in Afghanistan but in Indonesia and everywhere else to wipe out the left they got attacked by people that worked with all those years. They took their eye off the ball and they um, got caught up in 15 years of war and killing Muslims in Afghanistan and Iraq. When they were in the 80s, they were basically killing Catholics in Central America. That's what their plan was before the New York attack. When you see the plans to bring down and colonize Venezuela, that's not a new initiative from Trump. That's an old military priority from the 1990s from playing Colombia. You know, they're uh, in that space where the U.S. was distracted in the Middle East. All these progressive governments came to power in South America and Brazil. You know, there's Lula, who's now in prison, and uh, Bolivia, there's an indigenous leader who's still in power. 
in Uruguay. There's a former political prisoner of his president in Venezuela, Chavez. Then they're, you know, one by one getting knocked off now. And this is a case in Ecuador. The Ecuador had a progressive government. They were interested in what the cables from the U.S. Embassy was, and they got them from WikiLeaks, and it showed that the CIA was trying to overthrow or destabilize their government. So they immediately expelled the U.S. ambassador and the U.S. military base. That was under President Korea, who then granted Julian asylum and the embassy. And uh, then he stood down to have a break, and he's married to a Belgian woman, and he'd run to, uh, eight, you know, I think he said he was president for eight years, and he decided to have a break for four years. But the guy he trusted uh, to kind of run in his stead ended up selling him out, selling Julian out and selling his country out. And that's uh, London Marina. When did you first connect with Julian? We were all there in uh, the World Economic Forum in Melbourne in 2000. Julian was involved in that. Thousands of us blockading the, uh, the World Economic Forum at the Crown Casino. And then, um, you know, I'd heard about him, and, but I'm, as I said, I'm not that techie interested. And then when he got listed in London, I went straight to the court, and then I met him after he got released from Wandsworth Prison. And then I, my grandson was in British SAS in Iraq, and uh, so we eventually got the job of getting him safely into court and out of court and kind of security kind of stuff. It's interesting because before we had that, we went to his 40th party, and he's 48 now, so it's how long this has dragged out. And the guy who did security on me, when I arrived, there's an FBI informant, an Icelandic guy, Biggie. I think he's actually giving testimony against Julian now in one of these indictments or something. So, you know, the FBI, they got someone right in there in 2010. The statement by the UN, you know, the UN special rapporteur who just visited Julian jail, it's very clear about, just amazed about how someone could be bullied by so many governments in, in concert with each other to destroy him, like his credibility, his psychology, his physical health, you know. So now, now he's in the sixth day of a maximum security prison. You know, he's lost 10 kilo on weight in the past six weeks. Otherwise, he's locked in a cell 23 hours a day and hasn't got access to a library or a computer or anything, any way to begin to, to uh, organise his defence. So it's, it's a pretty bad situation. You know, Trump was just here and, you know, the people who went to protest Trump had no feeling or priority of either Julian Assange or Chelsea Manning. And you consider that Chelsea Manning grew up in this country for six years. It's hard to treat them seriously because it's going to have a serious movement. You're going to have prisoners. You know, you may even have fatalities and... Uh, one of the speakers, there were two nights recently, last couple of nights, uh, George Galloway spoke in Chris Hedges, and there was also an Irish Republican hunger striker speaking, and, uh, and Laurie Love, who won his appeal against extradition. So, yeah, I mean, when they play hardball, it's been pretty thin on the ground over here in terms of solidarity with Julian. And my observations is not much coming out of Australia a bit more recently. And, yeah, so he uh, definitely needs as much of support as he can muster, as he can muster, really. But it's pretty lean. Yesterday, the Australian High Commission had <laughs> was 125 pounds to get in, so he didn't go in, but it was Alexander Downer in conversation with William Hague. And Alexander Downer was High Commissioner here. 
London and just didn't do the job he's paid to do, which is to defend, you know, the human rights of Australians abroad. And William Hague was a foreign minister when Julian first went into the Ecuadorian embassy and sent the cops surrounding the embassy, threatening to invade it and threatening to break international protocol and international law. And we finally got called off. But these two clowns were in the Australian High Commission yesterday in conversation and people were lining up and paying 125 quid to listen to them. So we went outside and did some free-speaking ourselves. Fifty weeks in a top security jail in London for skipping bail. Ah, yeah, that's tough. It's in a maximum security prison for skipping bail and he got the maximum sentences. Like, um, I think he'd already been in jail for two weeks for his sentence, so they gave him 50 weeks. And there's another guy at the same time who killed a woman and he escaped sentencing to... Uh, the United States, and he's basically on holiday in the States on the run. He only got six months in comparison to Julian, and Julian spent seven years in sensory deprivation in a situation the UN had ruled with illegal arbitrary detention. And the woman sentencing him, it like really big in the arms trade and stuff like that. It's, it's like, and you know, the woman who first encountered him when he was dragged from the embassy, the magistrate. She called him a narcissist and a coward, and the guy hadn't opened his mouth, you know. All he said was not guilty. These people are supposed to be objective, you know. Like, so it's, it's, it's crazy. It's just a kangaroo court, you know, a lynch mob. He's now been indicted for 17 charges under the Espionage Act in the U.S. They're trying to get him back to the U.S. or get him to the U.S. What oh. do you know about the Espionage Act? Played at the end of World War One uh, in response to, like you know, United States enters World War One and World War Two quite late, and there was a lot of anti-war feeling and, and kind of isolationist feeling, and and the states against entry into that war. I think the states were kind of selling veterans of both sides in World War One uh, right up to late in the peace. You know, very strong anarchist movement and the states against conscription and. Uh, the Espionage Act was brought in to target them, really, as a political device. So it's supposed to be, you know, espionage is usually spying for a foreign force or another country or stuff. It's, uh, yeah, it's incredible misuse of, of it because, I mean, what Julian does is a publisher primarily, a journalist, but Chelsea Manning was convicted and sentenced for these kind of issues. Julian received... You know, passively received the information and published it, and that's what journalists do. So I think a lot of mainstream media are now realising that if they can use the Espionage Act against him, that they're all quite vulnerable. So, I mean, what you have, if you don't have resistance, you have just that journalist self-censoring, basically, steering away from from issues. You know, you look at the ABC, we just raided last week, weren't they? And, and that's about, you know, Australian Special Forces murdering unarmed people in Afghanistan. And the government wants to keep that. As the whistleblower said, it's, it's not about secrets, it's about lies. And, you know, they want to keep the myth of what a glorious effort we did made in Afghanistan. Of course, total bullshit, you know. And they want to keep that myth and that lie going because they want the next crop of naive young Australians to go off to the next imperialist war, not only to be killed and wounded and, and mentally screwed up, but also to murder children and civilians as they did in Afghanistan, clearly, and in Vietnam and in Iraq and everywhere else. 
at this stage now, where does Sweden fit into things? Well, it's an incredible image. You see a journalist dragged out by the secret police. This is a British special branch. You know, like I was living outside that embassy for 140 days, and special branch were there, armed, visible, which is unusual. You know, the British special branch, they've murdered a lot of Irish people in, in the north of Ireland, north of London. You know, they're heavy players. And here you have them dragging a journalist out of a building where he's a citizen and he has asylum, disappearing him into a vehicle, you know, and how you distract from that image, you know, and then you had immediately had Jerry McCorbett and, and Diane Abbott, the Labor Party, saying he shouldn't be extra of the state. And then they resurrect this Swedish thing for about the third time, which exhausted itself a number of years ago, and which was a total con. Like, like the British, there's emails that were revealed by an Italian journalist went to the High Court, and the Swedes uh, are saying in 2014, look, we've exhausted our inquiry. It's the second time, you know, the first time the senior prosecutor in Stockholm said, there's no absence of consent, there's no crime on your way in the 20 lead Sweden. And then the second time it's exhausted and the British are saying, don't get cold feet, keep the inquiry active, but don't come and interview him, don't progress the inquiry. So it's the third time, you know, so they raised this Swedish thing again. You have 80 Labour Party members of Parliament sign a statement saying, oh, he's got to go to Sweden. Kevin and I, those people who signed it, also voted to invade Iraq. <laughs> so it's like a coincidence? I think not. So it's just, you know, the old bait and switch bullshit, you know. And then we go to court in Sweden a week ago and the Swedish magistrate rationally says, if I interview him, there is in Belmarsh, fly over and interview him. There's no need to extradite him to Sweden. And there, was, there was never any need to, you know. There's always... In that time it took them to come to the embassy, when they finally came and dropped the charges, dropped not the charges, dropped the inquiry, there'd been 45 other cases of Swedish cops and prosecutors coming to England to investigate other issues. And there's always Australian cops coming to London and British cops going to Australia to investigate issues. It's just a healthy uh, decoy to muddy the waters, and it's been a very effective case. They've really done a job on him. And, um, you know, most people's position should have been when they're asked about Sweden was, I can't comment, I haven't done the reading, you know. <laughs> but people just parrot the Guardian or the right-wing tabloid. Once you do a little bit of reading, you realise what a fit-up and what bullshit this is. And it's similar to the, the cases of Irish people being framed in the 80s. You know, like the Guildford Trial and the Birmingham 6 and the Y7. If you question that, if you question them being in prison, you're seen as soft on putting bombs in pubs when they had nothing to do with any bombings. And they did 16, you know, Jerry, I knew Jerry Cummer did 16 years in jail. And the wife did 11 years in jail. And she was a conservative woman. Before her old son was tortured, did three years. She said the Coleman comes to get a lawyer for his son, dies in jail. But if she expressed any curiosity in those cases, or any doubt about the British justice system, is the sphere of association. That's what works so effectively in, in Julian's uh, marginalisation. Is that if you express any doubt, you're seen as uh, a rape apologist or, you know, soft on sexual assault. And it's just uh, very, very effective. It's incredible over here the intense, the intensity of hatred and caricature of him 
and slandered, by, especially by the Guardian, by you know everything from you know accusations of smelly dogs to fucking hygiene to not responsible for his cat, just childish, prim- not even primary school bullshit, and it just can't. It's a drip feed every week. And, and it's like Gable said, you don't accuse your enemy of anything. You accuse them exactly what you're going to do and exactly who you are. So, you know, you've got all these tops that write for The Guardian. They're all upper-class people who went through Oxford and Cambridge. They don't like this guy because he's a hippie kid, you know, and he didn't graduate from any university. <laughs> he just rocks the world in 2010 with Ricky Weeks. And they, it was just a whole lot of jealousy. Where I come from, if you attack, physically attack someone who's bound and gagged, that's cowardly. And Julian Assange hasn't had the right of reply since March last year. His internet was cut off and he couldn't make speeches and he didn't have a right of rebuttal. And these people just keep attacking and slandering him. Now that's gutless and that's cowardly. I've been living outside the prison for about two months and uh, the Labor Party Council put three aspects on me, antisocial behaviour orders. I went down to, to Westminster for Julian's, <laughs> Julian's last court appearance, and I came back, and there was just nothing there, like my bicycle, my tent. <laughs> Everything was just gone, you know. It was a bit like what the Israelis do to the Palestinians. They just knocked down their house, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, they weren't even visible. They don't even want a vigil outside the prison, and they've got all these bullshit laws, means of them doing that, you know. What do you know about his legal team and what access they have to him? I think they've... Yeah, I don't know how regular the access is, but um, he's, got a, he's got a pretty big legal team. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, know. I do not know the ink and outs of that. But, you know, Gareth Pierce is representing him. She's the woman who's free to Guildford for him. So it's a quality legal team. He's done a lot of the Guantanamo cases, getting people out of Guantanamo, keeping them out of there. So I think, I think their firm has quite an expertise on extradition. We need people to advocate for him in, in the cultural sphere and political sphere of sporting, whatever. Because it's dragged on for so long, you know, it's like eight years. And the revelations primarily had to do with the war that for a lot of young people is ancient history, you know. I mean, sometimes I feel like in my role as an activist, I feel like one of those Japanese soldiers they found in the Pacific still fighting World War II. They found them in the 1970s. You know, it's just like, <laughs> you know, there is no anti-war movement. And these people are, you know, Chelsea Manning especially is an anti-war prisoner of a movement that no longer seems to exist or is visible. There's very little happening that I can see around Chelsea Manning's imprisonment. There's much more happening in 2013, and, and she's not even sentenced. She's just being held indefinitely until she purges her contempt, which is defined by shopping um, Julian Assange, which she refuses to do, refuses to concoct a story about him rotting in jail. Well, then you've got to look at both the, the physical and the mental health of both of them. Yeah, I mean, intensity... I mean, the most important thing to a prisoner, I've spent a couple of years in prison, is knowing when you're going to get out when this is going to be over. Neither of them have got that. They don't know if it'll ever be over. And, I mean, Julian's been very resilient to not crack up, you know, over seven years, really. And really encouraged people to write letters to him from Australia, 
that not only boosts his spirits, but also tells the staff that surround him that he's not forgotten, that he's got support, he's got reach. What's your role now? Ah, well, I've got to reflect now. Like, I, I did 140 days outside the embassy and a couple of months outside the jail, and I've got to um, work out what's sustainable. And Well, actually, tomorrow I might, might even know when there's a hearing date, an extradition hearing date, so that'll give me some idea of, you know, whether that's this year. And Well, my mum's 87, so I'd have to go home at some point and see her and do a few things like that. At the moment, I'm staying put trying to keep a visible presence outside the jail and then when opportunities arise like Trump coming to town we went down and did a bit of an intervention there yesterday or the day before it was, uh, yesterday yeah, with uh, Alexander Downer and three things we're doing one is solidarity and that ranges from you know vigiling, making him visible to writing his name on a wall and one's uh, outreach, explaining that people should be sympathetic, anti-war people human rights people what the case is, and the third one is intervention, non-violent intervention. I was involved in East Timor before it was sexy and mainstream in Australia, right? And you knew you, you knew there was a tipping point when none of these people, like the Prime Minister or the Foreign Minister, could go out in public without someone yelling at them, what about East Timor? And that should be the case in Australia. Whenever, like, Morrison or whoever's Foreign Minister or the British ambassador, or whenever they play cricket against England, someone should be yelling, what about Julian Assange, you know? And that's when you know you've got a movement, is that these clowns who are responsible can't go out in public without being confronted by that issue. And that you saw that clearly with East Timor, which was a non-event in Australian politics from about 1976 to 1994. And then it picked up momentum and uh, much to to my surprise, you know, uh, got rid of the Indonesian military (laughs) who were being trained in Australia by the Australian SAS. That's all airbrushed out of history now. Yeah, but but Julian doesn't have that time, does he? No, no. Last night, uh, or today, the, the, uh, what's his name, Home Secretary announced that he you know, signed off on the extradition request. Boris Johnson looks like being the next Prime Minister, and he, when he was mayor, he spent £11 million pounds on surrounding Julian with 10 uniform crops. So it's hard to know what's going to happen. But we'll save the day, really. And uh, just got to keep trying, I guess. And that's something that Kieran does very well, is keep trying. He's been supporting Julian and Chelsea for many, many years now, and as he said, he's going to continue to do that. That's Julian. Um, Kieran O'Reilly speaking to me from London and from one activist to another. This is Joan Coxidge, activist and researcher. I suppose we're gradually coming to terms with a federal election, but it was still a lousy result, with voters opting for the hip-pocket, lying God-botherer instead of offering a smidgen of hope for the future. And as for that diddler of workers, Clive Palmer, he splurged his largesse purely to keep Labor out in a lying, negative advertising extravaganza. The right place for him is in the clink. Same for that other crooked mogul, US citizen Murdoch, whose malign influence continues to hover around the world like the bubonic plague. 
I fear that Labor, despite elevation of Albanese, who is the New South Wales version of what it means to be left-wing, which doesn't stand for much at all, and who is already making compromising noises whenever he opens his trap, he should realise that if Labor wants to stay relevant, it has to offer a genuine alternative to the anti-human right-wing economic agenda suffocating us and put climate change front and centre. But one thing we can be sure of is that we'll always have problems with our media as long as Murdoch draws breath and as long as we have people who don't give us stuff about anything except their hip pocket. Bob Hawke was given a public send-off with an enormous amount of hoo-ha. I reckon it's about time someone put the record straight about his illustrious career. Working-class hero, saviour of the labour movement, headlines from our media nongs. But for those with a memory, Hawke was the ultimate sell-out merchant, a class collaborator who wooed the big end of town, especially if it had an American accent. Along with hard man of the New South right, Paul Keating, they took over old Labour and jettisoned long-held principles and policies carefully built up over decades, replacing them with a frenzy of privatisation and deregulation. A nasty, womanising drunk rescued from dozens of compromising situations, Hawke settled disputes and cut back tariffs at the expense of workers. He cultivated mates, especially if they had power and influence like Mr. CIA involved in the 1975 coup, U.S. Ambassador Marshall Green, who was given Hawke's private phone number if he needed any help, like his trucking shipping magnet mate Sir Peter Abels. Bob and I said Abels dream dreams together, but not for the likes of you and me. Hawke held secret meetings with Rupert Murdoch and became mates with extreme right-winger George Schultz, who held senior posts in the Nixon and Reagan administrations. Overseas, Hawke was welcomed as a fervent Zionist and anti-communist. And on that crucial day in November 1975, when unions were mobilising for a general strike and prepared to down tools and take over the streets and cities in support of Whitlam and democracy, Hawke summoned the press and effectively told workers to cool it. And Australia cooled it and lost its bottle. He then had the gall to ask workers to kick in a day's pay to re-elect a Labour government. I was present when Gough and Margaret called him a little rat. In March 1983, Bob Hawke became the Prime Minister of Australia after doing a job on Bill Hayden with considerable help from our media. Hawke spruiked his version of consensus by pinching Liberal Party policies and adopting a wages and prices accord, a slimy way to introduce a wage freeze. Over the years, the gap widened as socialist ideals took a back seat, with political reporting going down the same ideological bunghole. Media apparatchiks accepted the bull dished out to them by the Canberra push, and the only one to confront Hawke was John Pilger. Hawke didn't like Pilger's line of questioning and literally scuttled out of the studio. To top it off, the ABC hierarchy apologised to Hawke. 
Today it's fascinating comparing the film star treated meted out to anti-worker Hawke and the ferocious anti-union onslaught against the only militant union left in Australia, the CFMEU, and its secretary John Setka, which employers and the government are out to smash. I have never met John Setka, nor did I attend the meeting where he's been accused of denigrating Rosie Batty, and nor will I have failed to defend the rights of women, whatever the circumstances. But there's something troubling about the current furor. This hunting down by powerful vested interests against a union official is so obviously a hatchet job. It's almost embarrassing. And while we can profoundly disagree with what he says or what he does, if he hasn't broken any law as a democratically elected union official, his union members are the only ones who can vote him out. But this is the opportunity the bosses have been waiting for. And shame on Anthony Albanese for so swiftly jumping on the media anti-union bandwagon by supporting the bosses. Trustworthy people who attended the meeting where Setka supposedly had a go at Rosie Batty were adamant he didn't say the words he's been accused of. Perhaps it's timely to remind listeners of the genesis of the Australian Labour Party. The gold rushes of the 1850s accelerated economic development in this country, seeing a tremendous expansion of our capital cities as centres of government. Gold also caused a large influx of miners, many with radical backgrounds from the 1848 struggles in Europe. And we saw the flag of revolt raised by the miners at the Eureka Stockade in Ballarat in 1854, signalling the end of British military rule, and within a few years all six colonies had self-governments. As capitalists took over the gold mines, most of the miners were forced to sell their labour to the mine owners, pastoralists and manufacturers. A powerful trade union movement developed in a booming economy with a strong demand for labour, but the economic crash of 1890 and the defeat of the Australia-wide maritime and shearers strikes showed the workers the need for political as well as trade union representation. The political labour leagues were formed in 1891 and became the nucleus of the Australian Labour Party, the only political party in this country with a history going back before Federation, one of the oldest and the first in the world to form a government. It has endured for well over a century, survived three serious splits, two world wars and God knows how many crises. It is by far the most resilient party in the Australian political arena and one of the hardiest in the world. Journalism as we know it now hangs in the balance after the US Department of Justice rolled out 18 new charges against Julian Assange under the Espionage Act, a century-old law used to prosecute spies in wartime. The first journalist or publisher to be charged under that draconian law sending a ferocious warning to every journalist and every publisher everywhere. A declaration of war on journalism itself and a fatal blow to a free press that would decide the future of our media. And what an irony that when the West was celebrating D-Day, our federal coppers raided officers of the ABC, a warrant granted by a Queenbian court registrar, for God's sake, which could never happen in Britain, where any police application for journalistic material must be approved by the Director of Public Prosecutions and then put before a real judge with the media represented, and on no account can it seek to identify journalistic sources. 
A genuine democracy depends on a well-informed public, which means that journalists must be free to pursue and to protect sources of important information about the behaviour of governments and businesses, which is what we haven't got in this country. It goes without saying that the spectacle of police raiding the ABC has further diminished our already diminished standing in the international community. Unlike other so-called advanced nations, Australia has no constitutional charter of rights protecting press freedoms or, for that matter, anything else. We urgently need a strong Bill of Rights and other related laws to protect what's left of our freedoms because the thought police are coming for us. Their raid is a wake-up call to all our mainstream journalists who joined in the propaganda war against WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, calling him an enemy of the people. They must now decide whose side they're on and where they stand on fundamental issues of disclosure and the public's right to know, and that they too could end up in White House gun sites. The disgraceful behaviour of the executive producer of the ABC's Four Corners program when she retweeted that WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange was Putin's bitch. A tweet she later removed says everything about the state of journalism in Australia. It's a national disgrace that we've now reached the stage where Assange holed up in a brutal high-security prison until his extradition hearing next February is viciously reviled, especially dangerous at this time in view of the attacks made by Trump, describing journalists as the enemy of the American people. What seems to enrage the journalist cabal in Australia is the challenge to their power by Assange and the fact that he's laid down a different path for the future, where journalists would be expected to produce primary source documents whenever possible and actually share them with the public. And what can only be described as an astonishing example of hypocrisy, one of Australia's most celebrated journalists, Peter Greste, who worked for Al Jazeera, chose this particular critical time to attack Assange. Considering that he was not only freed from an Egyptian prison by a campaign run by journalists, but is now trying to strip Assange of his journalistic credentials, writing that he was not a journalist at all because he published some material that named US sources in Afghanistan, even though Assange is a fully paid-up member of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. But what a shocking thing for Gress to deny Assange of a major part of his defence and thereby giving Washington a free kick to prosecute him for espionage, a crime that that carries a possible life sentence. And if it can prove that he acted deliberately to damage US national security and aid a foreign power, we're talking about a death sentence. It's far less surprising that the acting chief of the Australian Federal Police, Neil Gorn, said the raid was necessary to ensure, quote, the international community, end of quote, knows that Australia takes the leaking of sensitive information seriously, which can be easily translated to refer to only one thing, the United States, our most important intelligence-sharing ally. If Assange is left swinging in the breeze, 
It will be an open invitation for any journalist anywhere in the world to be shuffled off to the US, U.S. if it decides they have published material they reckon threatens U.S. national security. A catch-all phrase used to justify taking away even more of our freedoms that accelerated after 9-11, but apparently not enough for Prime Minister Morrison, who wants our top cyber spy agency to spy on us. Subject too vigorous oversight, as if it hasn't got enough snooping powers already and having a so-called vigorous oversight is a load of crap anyway. You can't oversee a secret body when you don't know what it's doing. We're living in rotten times. Within the space of a few days, an unhinged Trump and his tag team from hell have gone from wishing peace for Iran to threatening it with nuclear annihilation, highlighting their depravity To crow about wiping out an entire nation is beyond insane. The Americans are the only ones who have used atomic weapons when they dropped two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, still maintaining the right to use nuclear force preemptively. Their latest attempt to justify all-out war with Iran is that it was, was behind the attacks on two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman without presenting a single shred of evidence a rerun of former Secretary of State Colin Powell's infamous weapons of mass destruction speech before the UN in 2003, which made the case for the Bush administration's invasion of Iraq and the horrors that followed. The Japanese tanker owner and crew have strongly contradicted US officials and said something had flown at the ship, that it was struck by flying projectiles. It was no accident that the attack came hard on the heels of a goodwill visit by Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe because the Yankees don't like goodwill visits. They much prefer war or wars, full stop. And their barbarian president is bypassing Congress to sell bombs, precision-guided missiles, semi-automatics and drones to the Saudis to kill even more Yemeni civilians and with his henchmen is tightening the screws on Cuba. More than 200 Cuban academics have been refused visitors to to attend the annual Latin American Studies Conference in Boston and the Cuban government has been forced to introduce food rationing due to the worsening US blockade. I'll finish on a more positive note. She's 16, and she's Swedish, and she's angry. Greta Thunberg, a small girl in a bright yellow raincoat, burst onto the world stage and has transformed that anger into action, climate action, persuading hundreds of thousands of young people, even a few CEOs, onto the streets and into the battle. Adults keep saying we owe it to young people to give them hope, she said. But I don't want your hope. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. I want you to act as if your house was on fire, because it is. The time for action is now. Good afternoon and good luck. And many thanks to activist and researcher... Joan Coxage for that talk makes a lot of sense and makes you feel ashamed really to be calling yourself an Australian these days and for a few years now just another reminder before the program ends in an hour's time that if you did donate during the last week or even before that and you haven't paid yet this is how you do it 
Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. On Wednesday the 5th of June, members of the Australian Federal Police were discovered at the site of the now-closed Panguna Mine on Bougainville. Social media reports pointed to the fact that the local community were not informed of their visit and alarms were raised when photos were shown of the police checking out the abandoned mine site in what has been claimed was, quote, in preparation for the referendum on independence, unquote, and that they also visited border post sites in Bougainville. Vicky Johns is a member of the Bougainville Freedom Movement here in Australia and an activist for many years in support of independence for Bougainville. Vicky, looking at the history of Australian involvement, both police and military, on Bougainville, people have reason to be concerned? Brief history of Bougainville. A war started back in 1988 over a copper mine um, at Panguna. There was lots of copper and gold and sadly the war that began, Australia had a massive influence on it because it was an Australian mining company. So that brought in um, lots of Australian intelligence, police and the military who were trained and advised, the Papua New Guinea Defence Force were trained and advised by the Australian government. So the Australian Federal Police have had their finger in the pie basically in Papua New Guinea and Bougainville for quite a long time. But back in um, 2005, I believe it was, the Bougainville president at the time, the late Joseph Kabui, wanted the um, Australian Federal Police to withdraw because he felt that they were spying on the people of Bougainville. Anyway, long story short, there was a request uh, by Bougainville and Papua New Guinea to get rid of 160 Australian officers to leave and it went to the High Court and the High Court, the government of Papua New Guinea won and the 160 Australian officers had to leave because it was unconstitutional. I'm not sure when they actually started to come back again. I know that um, there was a request in 2006 from the Bougainville government that requested 10 Australian police officers to come to Bougainville to help sort out law and order problems. It was on the 5th of June this year, only a few days back, that the Australian Federal Police were spotted at um, the Panguna Mine on Bougainville. Their presence created an uproar on, you know, by the locals that lived around the area and they put out a press statement basically saying that they wanted to know why 
the Australian Federal Police were at the mine site at Panguna, the, you know, the controversial Panguna mine, on Wednesday the 5th of June 2019. And what answer did they get? Well, the thing was, being a member of the community around that mine area, the mine site, you can understand why they were suspicious when they saw Australian police taking as they thought, GPS readings at various points around the Panguna mine. The press release stated also that this was from James Onatu, who said that, um, I think the public is owed an explanation as to what is happening. Their presence at Panguna, which is the site of so much controversy and, and disagreements, plus issues of sensitive nature stemming from proposed reopening by the Bougainville government raises serious questions considering the fact that in the past Australia always supported military intervention by the Papua New Guinea Defence Force to regain control of the Panguna mine. Now, the other thing was, um, he said that if the Australian Federal Police can raid the ABC office in Australia, then they are capable of anything, including maybe gathering intelligence on the ground for the purpose of regaining control of the Panguna mine and restarting the mine with the use of, of force. I mean, that in itself is, you know, quite a worry. <clears throat> he also said that it's a well-known fact that Australia's interest in the mineral deposits at the Panguna mine never declined and Australian advisors to the Bougainville government have denounced things like agriculture, tourism, fisheries and other sustainable industries, saying that only mining is able to finance Bougainville's independence. Several companies which are vying to reopen the Panguna mine, which were shut down by the landowners in 19, it was 1988 actually, are of Australian origin. So you can understand the concern and why the people are suspicious. They actually took photos of them, which have gone out on social media and other news outlets. And yes, there they are, the uh, Australian Federal Police at the Panguna mine site. Yes, so the people wanted to know why they were there and expected a, a response from the Bougainville Police, which they actually got a couple of days later. And the police of Bougainville, the Deputy Commissioner Francis Takura, said that yes, they travelled to Bougainville from the 3rd to the 8th of June this year, 2019, as part of their, part of their preparation to, to provide support for the regional support mission to Bougainville for the Bougainville referendum later this year. But he also said that the purpose of the trip was basically that why AFP, the Australian Federal Police, were in Bougainville was to assess medical facilities, assess security in Bougainville, as well as helping the water police along the Solomon Islands-Bougainville border. That still doesn't state why that they were, they were at Bougainville, but he, he uh, mentions that they travelled between Arrow, Arrowa and Bowen, which is down south, the south area of Bougainville, and the team stopped at the uh, old Panguna mine pit to take pictures. So it's, uh, it's sort of like, so was it a, like a, was he a tourist guide or, you know, was the police having a bit of a tour around the, the Bougainville mining site or were they actually taking GPS readings?
very hard to say. He also stated a bit later that Australia is one of the key funders of the Bergenbaugh rep referendum, which is due to happen in October this year, 2019. He said that Australia is one of the key funders of the Bergenbaugh referendum with other countries, which will be part of a regional assistance mission that New Zealand will be leading during the conduct of the Bougainville referendum. And he says that in such a case, it's, it's only proper for them to make their own preparations in support of the Bougainville Police Service. But wouldn't it also have been proper to let the local people know what was happening? Absolutely. It's, it's just shocking. I mean, they have every right to be suspicious. If I was there, I would certainly be suspicious. Absolutely. Now, we are talking about the referendum which has now been put off. It should have been virtually over by now, shouldn't it? Would have been the 15th of June. Now it's been delayed until October. What reasons did they give to delay it? From memory, there was the lack of money to run the referendum. So the Papua New Guinea government were meant to put forth, I forget how many millions, and they hadn't done so. So this was at the time when Peter O'Neill was the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, who's recently resigned, and now we have a new Prime Minister in Papua New Guinea called Marape, M-A-R-A-P-E. It's only been recently that the money that was promised that should have been put forward to Bougainville so they can, you know, get out there and tell the people in Bougainville all about the referendum and, you know, that sort of thing, like awareness... The money's only just come through. And I read recently also that only half of that money has come through. So it's putting a lot of strain on the people on Bougainville still wondering if the referendum is ever going to happen, the way things are going at the moment. If this vote goes ahead, what are the options people have to vote on? The best idea would have been a simple question, would you vote? for independence, yes or no, as an answer. I think that's very, very simple, and a lot of people on Bougainville, you know, said that's how they would have preferred it. But Australia is sort of making it more complicated and Papua New Guinea by asking, do you, would you like to vote for greater autonomy or independence? So now this team of, from Bougainville are trying to get round the island and explain what greater autonomy is, but they all know what independence is. And it looks very highly likely they will get there. You know, they'll win hands down on the independence vote. Can I ask you also about the mining, the changes to the mining bills, the Mining Act on Bougainville? What does that mean for the people of Bougainville, particularly with this vote coming up? It's always been said that the only way Bougainville can really have her independence is with mining. Now, the argument is that there are other ways that Bougainville can remain independent, you know, through fisheries, tourism, agriculture, maybe small-scale mining. But the, the, the plug seems to be coming from Australia and Papua New Guinea and the mining companies that mining is the only way to go for Bougainville. New mining laws came into effect in August 2014, I think it was, but recently, the Bougainville government wants to change those mining laws, but they aren't being accepted because it, it's very one-sided. It recently went to the Bougainville government parliament and has been rejected for the moment. 
So that's still up in the air with that with the current mining laws that they want to change. Who would benefit from these laws, new laws? Well, it's another Australian company and um, a handful of, um, from what I can tell, corrupt politicians from the Bougainville government. Well, people have got a long memory, haven't they, in the, the Bougainville issue and it was never, the people were never compensated for either their loss of their land, their loss of their lives, their their loss of their environment. So it, it just seems amazing that these companies think they can just walk in now and start it all over again. It's absolutely disgusting. These mining companies have no, as far as I'm concerned, these mining companies have no respect for humanity, particularly for the people of Bougainville, and no respect for the environment. It's all about dollar sign eyeballs and the people don't count. It's shocking, absolutely shocking. And even if the mine was to reopen again, there's like massive like billions of dollars to reopen it and and it would take you know years to get any sort of mine up and running you know where there's finally profits being made so it's it's not helping Bougainville at all and then you've got the dead rivers dead rivers yes yeah that the the that hasn't been cleaned up the mess at Panguna is you know shocking the rivers right down to the sea are highly polluted and toxic yeah, nothing's being done about that, but there's this massive drive for mining, 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 a bit like us here in Australia with the Dharni. Yes, well, you've got it up in your, near your way, haven't you? Oh, oh, oh. absolutely shocking. When you think of P&G, what they've done to P&G over the years and the, you know, the resources that they've ripped out of P&G, whether it's um, mining or, or forestry, and, and the, the devastation that they've left behind there. It's appalling, Jan. The people aren't counted. It's capitalist thugs at their worst. They don't care. They don't care about the people. They care about money. And as you say, the devastation has been horrendous, again, in both Bougainville and Papua New Guinea. And the rivers are polluted. And are any of the... How many people are rich on Bougainville or, or in Papua New Guinea? Probably we'd say a handful. The rest are dirt poor. There's no medicines, you know, there's no, you know, there's shortages of lots of things over there. I'm just wondering what you know about the young people on Bougainville now who who might arc up if um, this, this isn't resolved to look after the people. We've had the, the younger people back in the 80s who said enough is enough. Yep. Is there a possibility that something like that could happen again? I think the youth of today are very powerful. You know, we're seeing it with the climate change action groups all over the world. And yes, and I think that definitely the youth on Bougainville are, are more concerned about their environment than what they are about with mining. But I think the uh, youth will definitely um, take a, a higher role in this stuff. I think the other concern too with, again, going back to Bougainville, they've got islands in Bougainville that are sea levels are rising and people have had to be have been evacuated from those islands the Cartras Islands they're called to mainland Bougainville so you know all the signs are there you know we're all trying us you know we're all trying our best to try and save the planet but when you have you know these monsters that come in and destroy everything the capitalist thugs as I keep calling them you know it's a battle an absolute battle, but this battle's got to be won. There's got to be justice. 
Talk about the the alternatives there are. Talk about them a little bit more to mining. I, I heard a bit of a, a an article on the ABC a while ago about chocolate, how they're manufacturing chocolate from the plants in Bougainville. I don't think they've actually got to the manufacturing stage at this point, but that the the, uh, the plants that make the, you know that get turned into chocolate, C O C Oh, I think it's got, I, I say cocoa. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. But yeah, they grow the best cocoa, you know, around, you know. So people from around different parts of our planet want to buy Bougainville cocoa, but not, I, I think at this stage that the, the chocolate isn't being made on Bougainville. But you know, other things like, um, you know, agriculture, tourism, you know, make that horrible, great, dirty, copper mine <laughs> a tourist site you know charge people to go and see it fisheries is another thing you know and other sustainable inter- you know, industries that you know really are way better off for uh, for us all on this planet earth you know do they have coffee on Bougainville? Papua New Guinea definitely has coffee I know that there's some rice being grown as well I think coconuts would be a wonderful thing as well. The actual coconut, the you know, the husks that can be turned into you know some sort of mulch for the garden, or even making furniture out of that. There's so many things that can be done with coconuts, make, making soap, making beautiful body oil, you know that sort of thing. Yeah, the ideas are there, but they're they're sort of not coming to fruition because the mining companies think that they've got all the answers for Bougainville. So what they need is um, Australian companies or Australians or other people as well to, to partnership with the people on Bougainville. Is that what's needed? I think so. I think that would be a great idea. Absolutely. I know that there are a couple of um, touring or tourist ventures are happening, like a surfing, you know, go to Bougainville to do the surfing. But other than that, I, I guess the other aspect of it too, Jan, is that the people are very self-sufficient as well. They've just sort of plotted on, you know, just looking after themselves, their communities and families and things like that. So I guess the like getting excited about our capitalist way, our Western way is not. Maybe I'm wrong, wrong here, but this is my thoughts that maybe the the ramping up of capitalism is not the way they really want to go. Yeah. So yeah. So it's yeah, it's difficult, but. Being self-sufficient and managing to survive that way would be a beautiful thing. You know, just imagine us in a time of war. Would we be able to survive? No. No, but the people at Bougainville did. That's Vicky Johns from the Bougainville Freedom Movement. And it's coming up to 18 minutes past five and just got a couple of minutes to give you an idea of some benefits that are coming on for the Radiothon. So again, get along to the old concrete gang and your radio from pull up for 3CR Radio Monday, July the 8th, 11am onwards at the Albion Hotel, uh, which is now known as the Northport Hotel at 146 Evan Street, Port Melbourne. $20 entry and that gets you in the door, a feed, listen to Phil Parra, one of the greatest bands going around and a chance to win a $500 door prize. Be there or be square. See you then.
celebrate the end of Radiothon with the friendliest punks around. Greek Resistance Bulletin is throwing a party featuring pests, Somatized, Parlour, Punter and Gun Laws on Saturday the 6th of July at Bar 303. That's 303 High Street in Northcote. Listen on Tuesdays at 10pm for news from the social movements of Greece in English and Greek and join us to celebrate the diversity of punk and support Community Radio 3CR. Check out Greek Resistance Bulletin on Facebook for more details. I think we should get this invention which sucks up all of the rubbish in the world and puts it in an intergalactic dimension. 2040 is the latest film by award-winning director Damon Camot and shows us a possible future we could have if we take on board all the best practice options available now to change our planet. Join the Out of the Blue team for a special fundraising screening of 2040 on Thursday, 20 June at the Nova Cinema in Carlton. To book tickets, Google 2040 Out of the Blue Radiothon Movie Fundraiser or find the event on our Facebook page on facebook.com slash outoftheblue. Come along to Cinema Nova with the Out of the Blue team for a drink, a fantastic documentary and help raise funds for Radiothon 2019. Thursday, 20 June, 8 p.m. at the Nova Cinema in Carlton. Please note, saving the world is not guaranteed, but having a great night is. Everywhere you look, you will see incredible reasons for hope. Late last month, the 193 UN member states voted overwhelmingly to demand the U.S. hand over control of the Chagos Islands to Mauritius, quote, as soon as possible, unquote. And it's instructive that both Britain and the U.S. wrote to all U.N. missions urging them to oppose the draft resolution, arguing that rather, as a matter of decolonisation, the fate of the Chagos is a bilateral issue between the UK and Mauritius. I'm speaking today with Margaret Perrell, who was born in Mauritius and came to Australia as a young child. To begin, Margaret, can you describe where the Chagos Islands are, how many of them, and of course one of them is Diego Garcia, the home to the largest US base in the world. The Chagos Islands are a group of islands in the Indian Ocean. They are more or less smack bang in the middle of the Indian Ocean and they are 100 kilometers from anything else. There's about 60 or so islands. They are all very, very small. The largest island is Diego Garcia. And just to give you an idea of the size, Diego Garcia is about 27 kilometers, square kilometers in area, and that's the largest of the islands. In terms of distance from Mauritius, it's about 2,000 kilometers from Mauritius, or 2,000 kilometers from the east coast of Africa, and it's about south of India. When and where did the UK become the colonial power of these islands? Starting before that, the first colonial administration of Mauritius and the islands was by the French, and the French named Mauritius Île-de-France. And the British captured Mauritius in 1810, and there was a Treaty of Paris in 1814 where France ceded Mauritius and all its dependencies to the United Kingdom. And, of course, its dependencies include the Chagos 
islands. During the Napoleonic Wars, that's where the, the French toppled and the British took over a lot of the French colonies and, of course, Mauritius being included. And how did the people live on those islands during those times? In Chagos, originally what happened was that the French, being the colonial power before 1810, had brought a group of slaves from Mozambique, from the east coast of Africa, to work on the coconut plantations. And the way they lived was from Mauritius. Mauritius would bring supplies on a boat to the island, so supplies such as rice and milk and sugar. Then they would work on all the coconut plantations and produce copra, and that would be exported back, taken back to Mauritius. Chagos Islands, as well as the islands of Agalega, further to the west, northwest, were called the oil islands because they produced that copra oil, which was then taken back to Mauritius. So Mauritius used to have, there was a ship which would do the round of the islands. It would go from Mauritius to the Chagos Islands and to the other islands in the Indian Ocean and basically take supplies and bring back whatever these islands were producing. So on these islands, you would have people, you would have pigs and chickens, so they would produce their own eggs. And, of course, they lived a lot on the fish. During the middle of the Indian Ocean, and seafood was abundant. They also have huge crabs, and so there was plenty of very healthy food, and they would also grow their own vegetables. And things like rice and sugar, rather than being paid with money, where there was nowhere to spend their money, they would be paid with their rations of food. Can you talk a little bit about your family's life on that island of Mauritius? We lived in Mauritius, so I was born in Mauritius, my father was born in Mauritius. My father was actually a medical practitioner, he was a doctor. And on this boat that I mentioned that goes around the islands, they had to have a doctor on board. You can't have a boat with no medical staff at all, so they had a doctor on board. So one year, that was in the very late 50s, my dad was invited to be the doctor on board when the ship went around the islands. My dad and my mum and my elder brother, they went off for a month on the tour of the island. So they visited the Chagos Archipelago and they were just amazed at what a beautiful place it was, what a simple life the people had. They just worked on the plantations, they were paid with their rations, they fished, they had their chickens for their eggs and their chickens and some had pigs. They had pets, they had dogs, cats, and so on. Just a very simple life. And when these people had a very serious medical condition, they would taken, be taken on board that boat and taken back to Mauritius to be take, taken care of because there was only one nurse available on those islands to take care of, you know, things like childbirth, anything that happened. But when there was something more serious, they would be taken back to Mauritius. And actually what then happened in the 60s, when the English was wanting to allow the U.S. to build their base, when some, some of the people who had been sick had been taken to Mauritius, they were not allowed to return. That's how some of that, that whole saga started as well. Just step back a little. We're talking about a country that was under colonial power. Mm-hmm. It was a time of decolonisation. What were the people expecting was going to happen? When we talk of Mauritius, there's the, the territory of Mauritius, which is made up of the big island of Mauritius, 
as well as all the other island dependencies. In the 60s, the era of decolonization, Mauritius, led by Mr. Rangulam, the Rangulam political party was pushing for independence. In Mauritius itself, where I was living, there was two political parties, shall we say, and one was wanting independence from the UK, and the other part of the population were contemplating realigning itself with France. Because if you think of Mauritius, we were originally French, and up to today, the French language and the French culture has remained in Mauritius. France still pours quite a bit of money to maintain the language and the culture in Mauritius. In terms of the way we live, the bulk of the population, we speak French, we sort of have a, a sort of French way of life. So when Rangulam was contemplating independence, a good part of the population was contemplating, well, let's realign ourselves with France. But of course, that did not happen. And of course, the people didn't know that the British were secretly talking to the US about setting up a base there, did they? Back in 1964, I think 1963-1964, the British had approached Mr. Rangulam, but I, I, I was young, I was 12 or 13 years old back then, I can't remember whether the population were fully aware of it. But I do remember my dad, talk, I mean, when we were sitting around the, the, the dinner table, talking about the Americans are coming to Diego Garcia. So that would have been in about 1964, 1965. There was a feeling, people were roughly aware that the, the Americans were coming, but nobody knew what that really meant, what that meant for independence in Mauritius, what that meant for the people living on the islands of the Chagos Archipelago. People didn't know what, that meant, what the impacts would have been. We just knew where the Americans are, building, are going to build a base there. And on the one hand, perhaps what some people may have thought, wow, the Americans are building a base, that could potentially mean big development, a lot of work for people. And in any case, I mean, Mr. Rangulan had requested that the Americans do employ Mauritians in the construction of the base. Of course, that didn't happen. But so the feeling at the time was, well, that could actually be a good thing with the Americans coming to build their base. How many people are we talking about who lived on those islands? On the Chagas Islands, um, nobody knows for sure, but the count is about 2,000 people, probably just under 2,000 people at the time in the 60s were living on the Chagas Archipelago. In Mauritius itself, in the 60s, we were about just under a million people, maybe 800,000 people back then. And what happened to the people of Chagas Islands? There were meetings between Mauritius and the UK, and there was a decision made that the UK would retain the Chagas Archipelago for the Americans to build their base. With the people there, first of all, they were living on a number of these islands. The base was to be built on the main island of Diego Garcia. So the people there were gradually moved from Diego Garcia to the other islands, for example, 
use Solomon and Perospanos. Those people who had gone to Mauritius, perhaps for medical treatment, they weren't allowed to return. I think it was around about 1970 where the decision was made to then take all the people who were still on these outer islands, take them to Mauritius or to Seychelles. The manner in which that occurred is disgraceful because, first of all, all their pets were just killed, rounded into this big warehouse where they used to keep all the coconuts, and they were gassed from the, the gas of the vehicles coming from the, the exhaust of the vehicles, and all the, the pets died. And the Americans told the population, then, look, if you don't come, this is what's going to happen with you. And also, gradually, what the English had done is stop providing support in terms of food. So those people were basically being starved, and they were told, if you don't go on that boat to go to Mauritius, you'll starve to death or you'll be put to death, you'll be gassed to death. So it, it was extremely traumatic, and they were loaded on, on the ships to go back to Mauritius or Seychelles. When they arrived in Seychelles, they were put in the prison in Seychelles, locked up overnight or a couple of nights or whatever it was until the boat then left for Mauritius. So some of the Chagossians were dumped in Seychelles, and the other, the main part was dumped in Mauritius. And when I say dumped, that's exactly what I mean. We were just left on the wharf. Now, those people, when they had left Chagos, all they had with them was a little bag with maybe a blanket and a change of clothes. They had absolutely nothing. They were left on the wharf, just there. How were they supposed to live? The UK has recognised that what it has done was unlawful, I mean, the court has ruled that it was unlawful, the, the High Court in the UK. The Mauritian government as well didn't, I mean, initially do much for the Chagossians. So initially, those people, they just went to a slum area north of the capital, and they had no work, they had no food, they really had nothing. So they lived in extreme poverty, which led a group of those women living in Mauritius to really fight for their cause. So a group of these women went on hunger strikes. So we're now talking of the late 70s. They went on hunger strikes to eventually get the attention of the Mauritian government to do something for them. And little by little, the Mauritian government started providing them with support. But for at least 10 years, those people lived in abject poverty. And the saddest thing as well is that back in Chagos, those people really did not get much of an education. There was some schooling provided, but most of them really didn't learn to speak French or English. They just spoke their Creole language. So when they arrived in Mauritius, they didn't speak French. They didn't speak English. They barely had arithmetic education, perhaps to the level of grade two, grade three. That, that was about it. So they couldn't get a job. Who would employ someone who couldn't speak French or English or couldn't count? So they couldn't get a job, which made matters worse. So then, of course, a lot of the young people went into drugs and prostitution. There was a lot of suicides. It was just a very sad affair. Tell me more about the women who supported them. 
There was a group of women, first of all, I'll just mention a few names. Today, the leader of the Sagosian people is Olivier Bancou. So one of those women who fought for that cause was his mother, Rita Bancou. And as well as there was another lady called uh, uh, Lisette Talat and Salesia, I think her name, and a third woman. And they, they just said, no, the government has to give us some food our children. I mean, some of them were just having newborn babies. There was just nothing for them. And they went and protested. They went in front of the, the British Embassy in, um, in the capital, Pauli. They organized marches and um, hunger strikes. And some of those women were then, they were beaten up, they were put in jail. And some of them were saying, well, I'm happy to be in jail. At least I am fed when I am in jail. Eventually, the Mauritian government fought with the British government to provide more compensation for these people and the British government then gave a bit more money but when the British government gave, I think it was about three million pounds which uh, was very little by the time they divided by 2,000 people, when the British government gave them that compensation the British government got them to sign something to say that they will never again seek more compensation from the UK in other words, to just exonerate the United Kingdom for what had been done. Say, well, you take this money and that's it. You can't come and make more claims in the future. And I'll tell you one little story that Olivier Bancou told me. He was in primary school. He had two brothers, I think, and a sister. The others didn't show any desire to, to be at school and to learn, so they left the school. Olivier was still at school. And his mother, Rita, said to him, you must complete your primary school so that you can have a little bit of an education and be able to get a job down the track. It came to the time when he had to sit in Mauritius. You, at the end of the primary school, you have a primary school exam to get your primary school certificate. And to sit for that exam, you've got to pay. There's cost to pay perhaps the equivalent of $20, whatever that would have been at the time. Okay? They didn't have the money. And Rita sent Olivier to Madame Interest. There was a lady who would lend money, and of course she was called Madame Interest because she charged interest on any money that was borrowed. So Rita gave Olivier a little handkerchief, go and see Madame Interest to get the money, put the money in the handkerchief, take that to school so that you can pay for registration for your exam. And he told me that. So I can imagine this 10-year-old little child trying to go and get some money, put it in a little handkerchief, take it to school to register for the exam. That's the sort of thing they went through. He did register for the exam, he did get his primary school education, and he did become an electrician, got a trade after, and he's been employed. You are listening to an interview with Margaret Perrell, supporting the return of the people of the Chagas Islands to their home in the Indian Ocean. Was he one of many who succeeded in that way or not? I would say one of the very few. His whole family, actually, which is a really sad story. His two brothers were killed, whether it was suicide or drugs, I don't know. His little sister, who went in prostitution, again, just one day, she covered herself with petrol and set the light, committed suicide, because, I mean, their life was just unbearable. So he was the only one of his family left, and he completed his school. And he vowed with his mother, he said, I will spend my whole life fighting for our cause.
and he has continued to do so. And what happened to his mother? She died in 2012. Luckily, she managed to revisit her Diego Garcia, the place where she was born in Perros Banos, when the UK organized a visit. I think it was in 2006 the UK organized a visit for the Chagossians to go and see their, their homeland and tend to the graves of their ancestors. And she managed to see her homeland again, but then she died in 2012 of old age. So her dream of going back home and settling back home and dying in the Chagos Islands was never eventuated. Who organized the trip? I mean, that must have been traumatic for the people to know that they can go there for, you know, a couple of hours and then you've got to go back again. That's right. Well, the United Kingdom organized that. That was in 2006. And since then, the United Kingdom has organized other trips. But the Chagossians have said, look, we don't want to just go there and visit for one hour. We want to go there permanently. So a lot of the Chagossians now are refusing to take part in those visits because they just see this as the UK is trying to make us feel good, but really the UK is not listening to us. We want to go back home and live in our home where we were born. Did any of the Chagossians end up in Britain? Yes, they did. Some details I haven't followed very closely, but I think it was in the 90s the UK allowed the Chagossians to remain in the United Kingdom. So the, the UK did provide some Chagossians with permanent residency in the United Kingdom. So some decided to go and live in the United Kingdom. It's a small number. The majority of Chagossians are still in Mauritius. And the main reasons why some decided to go to the United Kingdom was possibly to access education in the United Kingdom. Because initially in the 60s or 70s when the Chagossians were dumped in Mauritius, the Mauritian government ignored them for 10 years or so. A lot of Chagossians feel very strongly against the Mauritian government as a reason as for that and then decided, well, I'm going to go to the United Kingdom. The Mauritian government didn't really recognize that I needed help when I did. So there's a small group that have gone over there. And the sad thing is that the United Kingdom puts very specific um, criteria as to who is allowed to go there. So you have families of Chagossians where one child was born in Chagos and the next child was born in Mauritius. So the child who was born in Chagos is allowed to go to the United Kingdom and stay there, but the child who was born in Mauritius is not. There are very specific criteria, and I'm using a very blunt tool in explaining the situation, but you have situations where one member of the family is allowed to go there and stay there, another member of the family is not because of the time of their birth or the place of their birth, which is very sad. Well, what happened to the islands, the Chagos Islands, particularly Diego Garcia, once the US got there? What have they been doing over those years? In 1965, the decision is made for the UK to allow the US to build a base, 
1965, the UK then establishes the Bayot, the British Indian Ocean Territory. And the British Indian Ocean Territory was made up of all the Chagos Islands, as well as a couple of islands from Seychelles. After a few years, the U.S. decided we don't need those islands from Seychelles, so those islands from Seychelles were returned to Seychelles. So those islands of, of the Chagos Archipelago remained within what is called the Bayot Territory, the British Indian Ocean Territory, administered by the U.K. All the population was removed from those islands, and the U.S. came and developed their base on Diego Garcia. So their base is now the largest U.S. base in the world. You have 20,000 people on that, on that base at any point in time, thousands of ships and destroyers and airplanes and whatever. You have the longest airstrip for, for the planes to land. And the U.K. uses labor from the Philippines, Singapore, and other countries to work on the base. Any person born in the Chagos is not allowed to come and work on the, on the base at all. It's a military base. Originally, the intention or the impression was given that it was just going to be a communications base. It's a military base, and planes fly from there to go and bomb Iraq and Afghanistan, and it was used as um, a place for rendition. It's basically used to go and bomb the Middle East and destroy and kill civilians' homes and kill thousands of civilians. That's basically the use for it. Well, over the years there have been a number of efforts in the courts in the UK to bring an end to this scenario. When we talk of the courts in the UK, we are talking of the domestic law of the United Kingdom. The very first case um, major case was, I think it around about 2002, where the Chagossians challenged the United Kingdom because the United Kingdom had forced the Chagossians out of the island. So the United Kingdom had, had established the law that the population should be removed. And it is this law that the Chagossians fought and said that it's against human rights and whatever. You cannot make such a law. The UK argued that we made this law to maintain law and order in the islands. And, of course, the court disputed that and said you did not need to remove the people to maintain law and order because the people were not fighting. They were very peaceful people. So the UK lost that case. As I say, it was around about 2001-2002. So back then, the Chagossians actually could have gone back because they had won that case. But they had no means of going back. They were in Mauritius, totally impoverished, or in the Seychelles. They had no money. They could not organize a boat or whatever to take them back. They had nothing. So nobody helped them for them to go back. And, of course, they didn't go back. So the United Kingdom then made change the law and introduced a, a new law that say that say that anyone who wants to go to the Chagos is required to have a permit from the United Kingdom, and anyone born there is not allowed to go back there. Again, the 
Shagrosians fought that case, and again they won. The court found that you cannot make such such a ruling. So they won that case in early 2000, and they won that case, I think it was then 2006. So then the United Kingdom introduced a prerogative that said, oh, you're not allowed to go back, and that was that. It was something decided by a handful of lords, as they call themselves, in the UK. And then the UK wanted to establish a marine park, a marine protection area. And again, the the Chagossians fought that case. Again, the court was found that the UK, you cannot ban Chagossians from coming to fish in that area. But the United Kingdom has not removed that ban. So it's actually really sad in that the United Kingdom is basically ignoring what the courts are telling them. They're just not doing anything about it. So where we are right now is that the Chagossians are not allowed to go back. They are not allowed to go and fish in the, in the waters surrounding the Chagoss. All their rights have been removed from them. But now it's a matter for the United Nations, isn't it? Yes. So what happened is that the Chagossians have used all the possible avenues open to them through the domestic law of the United Kingdom. They haven't got anywhere. So they have now gone to international law. Through international law, how that works is that they go to the United Nations General Assembly. So back in 2017, there was a resolution for an opinion from the International Court of Justice. And Mauritius overwhelmingly won that resolution. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think the bulk of the European bloc abstained. And there were about 15 against and 95 for. They won that resolution, so the matter was taken to the International Court of Justice. And of course, it takes a couple of years to get there. The matter was heard at the International Court of Justice in September 1918, and the court gave its opinion in February this year. And its opinion was very blunt. The opinion was that the Independence of Mauritius has not been completed. The UK must return the Chagos Archipelago to Mauritius immediately. That's basically the opinion of the International Court of Justice. Of course, the opinion of the court is non-binding. So what has to happen now is to introduce resolutions so that to try and make this binding. So Mauritius took the matter to, no, actually it was Senegal, the matter to the United Nations in May this year to seek that the United Kingdom return the Chagos to Mauritius within six months. Then again, the resolution was passed overwhelmingly with only, I think it was five or six countries against it. Of course, Australia is one of the countries that is against it. So it was Australia, the UK, the US, Maldives, can't remember who else. It's really amazing that Mauritius, again, has won that resolution. So the world is really behind Mauritius, supporting Mauritius, rather than the UK. And the UK comes out again and says, well, resolutions are not binding. So basically, I'm not going to do anything about it. So the question is, well, what's going to happen next? I don't know what's going to happen next, but I wouldn't be surprised to see the matter now going to the United Nations Security Council. As you know, the Security Council has, I think, 15 members, 
and it would be a matter of, well, can Mauritius get at least eight or nine votes to support it? The sad thing in, in all of that as well is, I mean, for me, sitting in Australia, the facts are very clear. The Shagasashipigalago is a is part of Mauritius. It's part of the territory of Mauritius. And, and I, can, I can read you the facts to substantiate that. So there is absolutely no doubt, zero doubt, Chagos is part of Mauritius. The other thing that is given is that in 1965, at the Lancaster House Agreement, as they talk about it, when, when supposedly Mauritius agreed to giving away the Chagos, which is not the case at all, Mauritius had no power at all. There was a committee of ministers or whatever they called them. This committee was chaired by a governor who was a UK representative. Whatever decision that committee took could be overturned by the governor. So that committee had no power at all. So that committee goes to the UK to discuss the issue of Chagos and independence and Mauritius. And Mr. Angoulin was told by the Prime Minister of the UK, Harold Wilson at the time, you have two choices. You can get independence if you give us the, the Chagos, and even if you don't give us the Chagos, we're going to take it anyway. So your choice is, do you want independence or not? And the neatest solution for everyone is for you to have independence and for you to agree for us to have the Chagos Islands. That was basically the choice given to Mr. Ramboulam. He had no choice. He was basically blackmailed into that situation. That's not a fact. And the UK keeps fighting and saying, no, the Chagos was never part of Mauritius. We own the Chagos. The challenge for the UK, they keep fighting and they say, sovereignty of the Chagos lies with us. If that is the case, then the United Kingdom has a duty to let its people have a voice. Back in 1965, when the United Kingdom established Dilot by taking away the Chagos from Mauritius, the people were still living there. So those people have a voice. The United Kingdom has never given them that voice. So that is a clear breach of the United Nations Charter. So whichever way you look at it, the United Kingdom is in clear breach of international law. They will keep fighting for their cause. The lease for the U.S. space runs out in 2036, and they will keep fighting to be allowed to go back. I can't see the United Kingdom being able to continue the lease after 1936. The Mauritian government, I mean, if given that the court has established that independence is not complete, and it is a fact that the Chagos belong to, to Mauritius, and that Mr. Rangoulin really, he was basically blackmailed into agreeing to the separation of Chagos. At the end of the lease, I think there will be a huge case for compensation. So the Mauritian government will obviously seek compensation from the U.S. for having used their land, and, and I'm sure the land in Diego Garcia, they used a lot of the coral reef to build the, the airstrip, so there must be a lot of environmental damage there and so on, so who knows. But look out for a huge compensation case down the track. That would be one thing. And 
I think the U.S. and the U.K. are under extreme pressure to, to sort of start taking notice that they, they have to do they have to do something. The U.K. has been extremely stubborn, and it's sad that countries like Australia are simply supporting this by voting for the U.K. at the United Nations. It's, it's just very sad. There's at least 200,000 Mauritians living in Australia now. The Australian government is ignoring that, supporting the, blindly supporting the UK. So I think perhaps we can try and put pressure on countries like Australia to stop supporting the UK on, on that sort of issue. The UK has just, just keeps breaking the law again and again, and Australia just keeps giving them a tick. You can't do that. You can't go on and do that. The fact that the people lost their island, lost their culture, lost everything, but the fact that their island was then used for killing other people, that must rest very badly, very sadly on the people of the Chagas Islands. Yes. It's heart-wrenching. I mean, just imagine you, Jan, if you want to go back home after, after your work at the radio, and somebody just tells you, I'm sorry, you can't go back home, board the ship and you're going somewhere else. Can you just imagine the feeling, you can't go back home, and then someone else is going to come and you know, live around your house and basically fill up airplanes with bombs and go and kill thousands of people. It's heart-wrenching. Don't accept it. They continue to fight. They continue to fight for their cause. And thank you to Margaret. Meryl for that talk on the Chagas Islands and Diego Garcia and the fight of the people to return to their islands. For further reading, you could put in Google for the legal consequences of the separation of the Chagas Archipelago from Mauritius in 1965. I'll repeat that. The legal consequences of the separation of the Chagas Archipelago from Mauritius in 1965. And also, you could Google Geoffrey Robinson, who wrote an article on Chagas a number of years ago. But that's about all there is for me today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4. Just a little reminder that... Um, you still can donate. There's no cut-off point yet to donate to this wonderful radio station. So I do hope that you can do that in the next little while and um, keep it all on air and happy, happy little chappies. Okay, that's it. Bye for now. Done by law. We'll hear in about two minutes' time.